Let us learn Parshas Chukas. It's actually a double Parsha this week. We're going to be focusing on Parshas Chukas. What we're going to learn might seem a little morbid this morning, this afternoon, but it's not. All right, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go. Here we go. So we're going to be on page 842. You can open up your Chumashim to page 842, Parshas Chukas. It's a little bit in the middle of the Parsha, but I'm going to fill you in where we are. What we're going to be speaking about is that there are actually two very significant deaths which take place in this week's Parsha. Both Miriam and Aharon die in this week's Parsha. And the sages make the same statement surrounding both of their passings and take note of the fact that there's a topic discussed right together or near both of their death and connect them. And I'm going to leave you hanging exactly what that is, but I'm going to say we're going to learn it twice and then we're going to learn about the meaning and significance of what this is. And even though, again, as I said, it might sound a little morbid, but I hope that you'll leave uplifted by the time that we, uh, we finish. So 842, the beginning of the 20th chapter, Perikhaf is the death of Miriam. But before we get there, we just have to see, like, where are we in the context of what's taking place? So the parsha, if you just want to flip two pages back, you can. The parsha begins uh, page 838. Parsha's Chukas very famously discusses what's known as the Para Aduma, translated as the... Red heifer, the red cow, which is the process that if a Jew becomes tame mace, a specific type of tumma, ritual impurity, they go to a funeral, they're in the same room as a person who has passed away, they become tame. The only way to become tahar, to become ritually purified from that experience, there's only one way to do that, and that is to be sprinkled by the water of, uh, of the mechatos, which is a combination of the ash of this red heifer, which was uh, slaughtered outside of the base of Mikdash and then turned to ash and then mixed with the water and then sprinkled on day three and on day seven. It's a whole process. And this is why today all of us are considered a Tameh because we don't have it. We haven't had a red cow. We don't have the process. We don't have the coat. We don't have anything. So we're all ritually impure. But this is the process that one would become Tahar if they became Tameh through that immediate contact with death. They become Tahar through the process of the red cow. The whole long process the Torah discusses. It's known as a chok, as something which is beyond our understanding. If you try to explain to somebody why this works, good luck. And if you figure out a way to do so, please let me know. We, we just don't understand. We don't know what, what, day three, day seven, and you need specifically this type of cow. Why does that create the person into becoming Tahar and the Kohen who's involved in it becomes Tahar? We don't know. We don't understand. Shlomo HaMelech put himself on the list of those who do not fully understand this as well. It's the way that it is. But that's not our topic for this morning's conversation. But that is the beginning of our Parsha. Immediately following that mitzvah that we were taught, we get to our psukim that we're going to study on page 842. So you could flip back there to page 842, beginning of Perechavayavoh. Everybody have the place there? And arrived, the entire assembly in the Midbar Tzin, the wilderness of Tzin, in the first month. Vayeshev ha'ambe Kadesh, and they settle down in a place called Kadesh. Vatamasha Miriam vatikaver sham, and Miriam died there, 
And that's where she was buried. There are a number of points in this Pasuk that should jump out and say like, wait, wait, wait a minute. What? There's either extra words or missing information. Something about this verse, two things particularly about this verse are missing. Now the main objective of the verse, what do we learn about this Pasuk? Miriam dies. The Jewish people then arrive in a place called Kadesh and Miriam dies. But let's go back because there are two major points that need to be addressed. Number one, who arrives in Midbar Tzin? Okay, keep going. There's a strange phrase. If you wanted to say that the Jewish people arrived in Midbar Tzin, what would you say? What does the Pasuk say? You already told me that Bnei Yisrael arrived in Midbar Tzin. What does Bnei Yisrael imply? Who does that imply? Everybody. Once you told me that everybody arrived, and then you had a second phrase that says, Kol ha'edah, the entire assembly. I already knew that from the first phrase of B'nai Yisrael. So wh- wh- who's coming and why are we s- expanding this language into such a double language? B'nai Yisrael, kol ha'edah. Okay, that's question number one. Question number two is if I asked you, when did they arrive in Midbar Tzin? What does the Pasuk tell us? First month. First month, excellent. What's missing? What year? What, year? <laughs> what do you mean the first month? The first month means the months of Nisan. Okay, so they arrived in Nisan. When? Our Pesach. Well, it's clearly our Pesach. That's true. It's the first month. What year? Well, how many years were they in the desert? What year are we in as far as chronologically as we're learning the stories? As we went through the last couple of weeks, we went through Parsha Shlach and Parsha Korach. What year was that in? That was in the second year. So we've already entered into the second year. That's when the episodes of the previous Parshas happened. And now we arrive in Midbar Sin and Miriam dies, and all we're told is it's the first month. It's the month of Nisan. What year? Year three, four, five, eight, fifteen. When? Totally missing. So who do we turn to for this missing piece of information? Rashi. Excellent. Great. Rashi tells us two important points on both of these, and he's quoting from the sages on both of these points. Point number one: the fact that the Torah says who arrived a double language. B'nai Yisrael, and that they were the entire assembly. Kol ha'idah. What do we learn from that? Says Rashi, number one, if you want to see it inside, it's on the left-hand side of the column, halfway through the, through the way down. Kol ha'idah, the entire assembly, is Eida hashlema, the entirety, the complete nation, meaning shekfar mesu mesei midbar. Everybody who was going to die in the desert has already died. So that when they arrived in Midbar Tzin, who arrived? Not just B'nai Yisrael. Yes, the Jewish people arrived. Anybody who's going to keep going has made it. Because everyone who's not going to make it out of the desert has died. Which means what year are we in? We're at the end. In this one passage that we just read... We just fast-forwarded through 38 years of Jewish history, and the Torah tells us not a word about it. From the moment of the spies, and then the rebellion of Korach, of last week's Parsha, and then we learn about Para Aduma, how to become pure again. We're now at the end. In this one Pasuk, so if you weren't paying attention in Laning, Shabbos morning, you'd be like, wait, how did we get here? We just, this one Pasuk took us through all 38 of those years, and we're now at the cusp of entering into the land. We only have a few more parashios in, in Sefer Bamidbar. And then we're going to get into Devarim. Devarim is the last seven weeks of Moshe's life. We, we, we just, we went through the whole... What took place during those 38 years? Same, same every day. Nothing. You have no idea. What did we learn? 
What experiences did we have? What did the Jewish people fetch about? Nothing. They have no idea. Nothing. Total silence on the 38 years, but that when we get to this place called Midbartzin, we're now at the end and everybody has arrived. And that is also hinted at, Rashi tells us by the fact that, or that from the fact that it's Bechodesh Arishon, it's in this first year, first month, excuse me, and it, it, what the missing month is, we're at the very end. We're in the final year before we enter into the land of Israel. Now, Miriam dies. Miriam dies and she's buried. Before we get to our main point, we just need to read a little bit more to fill in a little bit more of information. The next very pasuk, Velohaya Mayim Lo'eda. And when they get to Midbartzin, what do they discover there? There's no water. So they gather together uh, to Moshe and to Aaron. And they fight, they quarrel with him. And they say, We had died like our brothers had died. Remember, which generation is now complaining here? This is the next generation. Everybody has already died. All the people who complained about water and about food and about meat and anything else, we're... This is the next generation. They get to Midbartzin, Miriam dies, and there's no water. Now Rashi tells us also, very importantly, what's the connection between Miriam dying and them not having any water? Because she was the merit upon which they had water. And immediately upon her death, all of a sudden, there's no water. The people say to Moshe, where's the water? This is like so many things in life that you only realize what it is that you have and why it is that you have it when it's gone. As long as Miriam was alive, they had water, everything is good. Miriam dies, and the people are like, where'd the water go? Miriam is the one who was the source of that, and that's so many examples that we have in life, which we don't have the time to go through all of them. They're in our own lives, as well as in Chumash, where we appreciate things afterwards, and the Torah highlights that here as well. The people only really fully appreciated and understood that it was in Miriam's merit that they had the water upon, upon her death. Either way, they complained to Moshe and to Aaron. This is now 38 years later, the next generation. Why didn't we die like our brethren? Right? This is, they've been dying year in, year out, or the previous generation. We, we, we wish we could have died like them. Why did you bring us into this desert? To die here. Us together with our um, flock and cattle. Why did you take us out of Mitzrayim to bring us to this makom this terrible place? Not a land of seed and dates and vineyards and pomegranates. There's no water. They come to Moshe and Aaron, and Moshe and Aaron fall on their faces. We, there's a lot to discuss here, this nature of the complaint. They don't say, by the way, in their complaint, they don't say, we want to go back to Mitzrayim. That they don't say. They just say, why did you take us out? This is not a land of flowing with milk and honey. It's not a land of Gephon and Te'ena and Rimon. There's no water. We're all going to die. Moshe and Aaron fall on their faces. This is again 38 years later. They've been dealing with this. This is the next generation. A lot to talk about. We're not going to focus on that. We have to focus on something else. Mir Tashem and other years, we might get back to this. This will lead us into, again, not for today, but what's this going to lead us into? The famous episode in which Hashem, in the next pasuk, will say to Moshe, go speak to the rock and you'll draw forth water. 
a very similar episode to 38 years prior when the Jews first left Mitzrayim and they didn't have water and Hashem there told him to hit the rock. Now, 38 years later, Hashem says to Moshe, talk to the rock. And Moshe is going to fail in this task. And many of the commentators discuss what exactly the problem is. Again, not for today's discussion, Rashi, the Ramban. Ramban, everybody has a different interpretation as to what went wrong. But Moshe eventually hits the rock, water comes out, and he and Aharon both do not enter into the land as a result of this. All of that is for another time. That's just understand the context of where we are. What I want to focus on is Miriam's death immediately comes after what was the beginning of our parsha. The paraduma, the red cow, and becoming tar. The sages say, we went from that episode, fast forward 38 years and go right into the death of Miriam. What's the connection between Miriam and the story of the paraduma, the halacha of this red heifer? Why are they connected? Why are they put next to each other? So Rashi quotes from the sages. Maybe she was a redhead. No, maybe, maybe she was a redhead. It's possible. It's possible. I have not seen that in writing, but it's possible. It's possible. The sages had something else to say. The sages had something else to say. What the sages say is, Loma nismuchamisas Miriam, the parashas paradum. Why they connected Miriam and the story of the red cow. Loma lach, it's to tell us as follows. Ma korbanos mechaprim. Just like bringing a carbon creates a kapara. How would we translate kapara? Not a sacrifice, a kapara, an atonement. Just like karbonos bring atonement for the Jewish people in the Beis Lamikas, when we bring a karbon, it creates a kapara for the people. Af misas tzadikim mechaperes. So too does the death of the righteous create a kapara. In the same way as bringing a karbon is mechaper for the people, the death of the righteous is mechaperes. The mis of the tzaddikim also creates that atonement, derived from the fact that Miriam's death is taught to us directly next to the para aduma, is to teach that they create kapara. Now this creates one major question. We're going to ask a second one before we even answer the first one. The first one is a simple question, but a major one, which is, why should that be? Why should it be that because a righteous individual passes away, the nation creates, is given some type of kapara. What, what, what's the connection? When a person themselves passes away, there the sages also say that the process, the process of passing from this world to the next is also some form of a kapara, some type of a Yom Kippur experience, which is also difficult to understand, but a little bit more within our minds of being able to grasp why that is. But why? Because that person passed away, a righteous person. Great. What does that have to do with me? Why does that create a kapara? If, if, how does that work? And why is that? We'll put that on the table for a second because we have another thing, another parsha to learn before we get back to that. Okay, that's part number one with all the questions that we left on, still hanging, on Miriam and her death and the lack of water, the complaining for water. Eventually what happens is, as we discussed, Moshe strikes the rock, the water comes, then um, Hashem comes out with a punishment both to Moshe and to Aharon, and that's going to lead us to page 846 in which now Aharon is going to die. So this parsha of Chukas, again, as I said, has both the death of Miriam and now of Aharon. Let's learn a little bit about Aharon's death. Bottom of the page, verse 22, Pasuk Chof Beis. Vayisu mi Kadesh. They left Kadesh, which is where we were when 
Miriam died. And again, B'nai Yisrael, Kol arrive in Hor Ha'har, the mountain area known as Hor Ha'har. And Hashem says to Moshe in the next passage, and to Aaron, Bahor Ha'har, Aaron be gathered unto his people. The, right, the biblical way of mentioning that he will pass away, he's going to die. Remember, this is 38 years later. We're about to go in. Aaron will not enter, just like you, Moshe, will not enter. Aaron will not. Because of his involvement in the story of the rock, like we had just, again, we skipped over that. But um, because of that, Aaron is not going in. Aaron and Elazar Take both Aaron and Elazar, his son, and you're going to bring him up to the top of Hor Ha'ar. You're going to disrobe Aaron from his special clothing. I'm reading the top of page 848 now. And you're going to put all of the clothing on his son, Elazar. You're going to dress Elazar now as a Kohen Gadol. And then Aaron will be gathered unto his people there at the top of the mountain. Moshe does as he was told. Rashi points out this was with a heavy heart. This is not something Moshe was looking forward to doing. This is his brother who's now going up the mountain to die. But they both, all three of them, ascend. And Moshe takes off his clothing. He puts it on Elazar, his son. And Aaron there dies. And then only the two of them come down. Moshe and Elazar descend. The nation saw that Aaron had died, meaning three went up. To come down, Elazar's wearing the clothing of his father as the Kohen Gadol. The people understood that Aharon had died. And so they cried for Aharon 30 days. This is one of the several sources we find in Chumash that the mourning period is 30 days. The only exception to that is a parent, which is, of course, a full year which we become so familiar with that it, we always ask, as a, like, we think that it should be that way. The standard mourning is 30 days for a parent is a full year. And who mourns for Aharon for the 30 days? Kol Beis Yisrael, the entirety of the Jewish people. Kol Beis Yisrael. This is, again, parenthetical to our discussion, but I just have to mention, there's a beautiful comment that Rashi, together as explained by the Maharal, makes. When Aharon died, the Pusik says that Kol Beis Yisrael cried for him. Now, again, if I just would have said Beis Yisrael, who would, have, who would I have assumed cried for him? Everyone. Beis Yisrael cried for Aaron. Kol Beis Yisrael, the entirety of the people. Who's an addict? So Rashi tells us that this was to add the, the women. That it wasn't only the men who cried, but the women cried. And why did the women cry when Aharon died? Because Aharon was the paradigm of an Oev Shalom, Rodev Shalom, one who loved peace and pursued peace. And whenever there was a fight between friends or between husband and wife, Aaron was the first one to run in to try to make peace. As, uh, as is famously described, he would go over to one and he would say, you know, your spouse really wants to make up. He or she is feeling terrible. And then people would say, oh yeah, really? And then he'd go over to the other one and he'd say, you know, your spouse really wants to make up. He or she is feeling terrible. And then he'd get the two together and then make shalom. Aaron was the quintessential peacemaker. So when he died, everybody cried. So that's what Rashi quotes from the sages. So the morale asks a question which I hope you're all thinking about, which is when Moshe Rabbeinu dies, when Moshe Rabbeinu dies, the Pesach doesn't have the extra word kol. It just says, B'nai Israel cried for him. So the morale says, I don't understand. Like, the women didn't cry when Moshe died. 
Only when Aaron, like, doesn't, why, why should that be? Moshe Rabbeinu led us through the Midbar for 40 years. Moshe Rabbeinu brought us the mud. Moshe Rabbeinu brought us the Torah. The leader of the Jewish people died. So, no, we don't, we don't cry for Moshe. We only cry for Aaron. What, what, what does that mean that the Torah is highlighting that the women and, uh, cried when Aaron died and not when Moshe died? So the Maral explains, the Maral explains, it's not to say that the women didn't cry. It's that there was a different type of cry when it came to Aaron. Listen to this, it's an unbelievable thought. When Moshe died, so everybody cries. Why is everybody crying when Moshe dies? Because he was the leader. He brought them on. He on the Torah. He learned in the desert. So everyone's cry was qualitatively the same cry. They were all crying over the same thing. Moshe was our leader, and he did X, Y, and Z for me, just like he did X, Y, and Z for you, and X, Y, and Z for you. So we're all crying. So like qualitatively, it was the same cry. But Aaron was a peacemaker. Here's how the morale explains. If you want to make peace between two people who are fighting... So it's not just a matter of doing the same thing twice, going over to this one and then going over to that one. No, 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 no. When two people are fighting, it means because that they have different narratives in their mind as to what took place. They have a different story. They have a different worldview. And if you would ask them, like, what happened? Why, why did you get into this dispute? And how did we get out of it? So if you would sit with this one, they would tell you a whole story as to what happened and why they're upset and why they're in the right and why they were wronged. And then you go over to the other one, if you would say... What happened? They would tell you a, story. a whole story. And it wouldn't be the same story. We all know that that's what happens. Because if it would be the same story, we could agree. But no, it's not the same story. Everyone has their narrative. Everyone has their experience, their perspective on what's going on. The peacemaker has to be able to get into this one's world, get into the understanding of what happened in their narrative, and then get into this one's world, and then somehow find a way to get them together and make peace. So that when, if the two people would mourn the death of the peacemaker, it's not the same tears twice, it's two totally different experiences that are required to make shalom. So the Torah highlights, yeah, when Moshe died, everybody cried, but it's the same tears from the men, from the women, it's the same tears. But when Aaron died, it's everyone's crying separate tears because of their personal experience and that Aaron understood them differently than he explained. Uh, and that was like, so it was a multiplicity of the types of tears and that's what's being highlighted. Okay, nice thought, but not for our, uh, our main topic. In any case, the sages on the same page of Gemara who made the statement earlier of why is the death of Miriam next to the para Aduma? And they answered, why is Miriam next to para Aduma? Because just like a carbon is... Mechaper creates atonement, so too does the death of the righteous create atonement. On the same page of Gemara, the sages say, why is Aaron's death so connected to the clothing of the Kohen Gadol? So many, we read the paragraph together. Three different times the Torah goes through it. I want you to take him up with his clothing. I want you to take his clothing off of him and put it on his son. And the Moshe went up and he took the clothing off of Aaron and he put it on his son. And then they came down and his son was wearing. So much, why is the Torah highlighting the death of Aaron in the midst of such a discussion of the clothing of the Kohen Gadol? Answer the sages to teach you, just like the clothing of the Kohen Gadol is mechaper, just like the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, which he wears inside the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKadoshim and Yom Kippur, creates atonement, so too, finish the statement, does the death of the righteous, does Mitzvah Tzadikim, create atonement. So the sages make the exact same statement on both episodes in our parsha. 
that just like the death of the righteous by Miriam, which is next to the Paraduma, is to teach you that the death of the righteous creates atonement, so too, by Aaron Cohen, they say the exact same thing, but not in relation to the Paraduma, in relation to the clothing of the Kohen Gadol. Which leads to the same question. Why should that have an impact? And why do they need to say it twice in these two different contexts with Miriam and Aaron, once the Paraduma and once Amir? So I want to share with you a beautiful thought from Rav, uh, Rav, uh, Avram Yisrach HaKohen Cook, first chief rabbi of pre-state Israel, um, the well-known uh, Rav Cook. He says as follows. Well, first, let's just discuss, why should it be that one person's death should atone? That doesn't work that way. Why should that impact me just because somebody else died? How does that have any impact? And the sages say that it somehow it does. So he and the Torah Tzimim both address this issue in a similar but different ways as follows. So let's start with the Torah Tzimim, Baruch HaLevi Epstein. He writes as follows, that when, a, when a, a righteous person passes away, so what happens? What happens when a righteous person, like what's, what's the immediate aftermath? Of that. So articles are written and speeches are given and everybody talks and we mourn and we cry. So when we learn and are inspired about a life that was, what, do, what happens to us when we hear about that? So what, what, what needs to happen to us is that we become inspired. We become inspired because what you're hearing about is a righteous person who lived the life that we want to be able to live. And when you hear about that, this is why, right, the Pasuk in Mishli says it's much better to go to a shiva house than it is to go to a party. Because you go to a party and you walk out with a little bit of food, a little bit of drink in your body. It doesn't really do much for you in life. But you go to a shiva house and you sometimes walk out with that way, you know, I, I, that's what I want to live like. I want to have that kind of relationship with parents, children, community, whatever it may be. I want to do things like that. It's, it's inspiring. So the Baruch HaLevi Epstein writes, the reason why the Misa of Sadikim is Mechaperes is not intrinsic to the fact that he died or she died in the case of that all of a sudden it's a Kapara. That doesn't work that way. It works that way is when we lose such a person and we then respond as necessary by being inspired by the type of life that they lived, that creates the kapara for the Jewish people and that the elevation that we, the growth that we have through the experience, not the intrinsic experience of that person passing away, that's what gives us the kapara amongst that. Rav Cook says it in a a similar idea, a little different. Also, not not that there's nothing intrinsic, but he writes, what what happens also in the same way when when we value the death of the righteous, and we talk about it. Um, like, for example, I bring an example not out of, not in Torah. Let's say a, um, a great um, baseball player were to die. That's a great baseball player. Like, really, everybody agrees he's a great baseball player. And in our particular shul community, nobody mentioned anything or said anything. So what would that demonstrate? Nobody cares. Okay, very nice, there's a baseball player. I'll, 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 forget about I'll give it like a real paragraph. Let's say a great cricket player in England died. And it wasn't mentioned in any drusha class, email, like nobody made mention of it. So you would say, well, what do we learn from that? Like nobody cares. It's not relevant to our lives. Nobody stopped, nobody gathered together and said, we need to talk about this. Nobody sent an email and said, this is important because it's not. 
I feel bad for the human being who passed away. I'm saying, but the fact that he was a great cricket player doesn't affect us. It's not relevant to us. The fact that when a righteous person passes away and the Jewish people stop and take note and they say this is a loss for us as a people, it's a statement of value. It's a statement that says we care. The way that this person lived matters to us. What this person accomplished, we're proud of. And this is how we convey values. It's an amazing thing. We do this sometimes not as much as we need to. But like one of the things I, 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 I go to many bar mitzvahs, occupational hazard of being a rabbi. So you sit at these bar mitzvah speeches, right? And you often will hear people talking to the bar mitzvah boy in, in these like lofty goals and, right, that we have for this little pizzola who barely knows how to tie his shoes. And we're going to talk about what, you know, we want this for him and that for him. And it's, an, uh, it, it's beautiful. And the kid's not listening. There's no way he's not listening, and he's certainly not absorbing, and he's not paying it, right? He doesn't remember. So why do we do that? It's really important, though, why we do that. Because, you know, every 13-year-old is going to go through the experience, and then multiple times as he goes to his friends by mitzvahs, of hearing the values that we have. These are the goals, what we want for you. These are the dreams. Whether you're listening or not, the fact that we have an institutionalized forum to say... Young man, we have dreams for you. We have aspirations. We want you to be righteous. We want you to be a scholar. We want you to be this kind of person. That's important just as a community that we express those values. In in a culture that doesn't have such a thing. So if a child doesn't grow up hearing that, why would we think they're going to become that if they're not told it? Whether they're listening at 13 or not, it's this is how we speak. And that's manifested when a righteous person passes away. And as a community, we say, what a loss. What a great man this was. Is the opposite of the cricket player who dies without words. That's a statement of, we don't care. It's not relevant to us. When we say, we just lost a righteous person, it's a kapara for us. Why is it a kapara for us as a combination of Rav Kook and Rav, Rav Baruch Levi Epstein? Because when we say as a community, that is our hero. That person is who we value. That's how we want to live. So that even if when Hashem looks down and he says, you know, your lives are not quite matching up to that, we can say, yeah, but we want it. How do we show that we want it? How do we show that it's important to us? Because the way we respond. So they learn. So it's not that the intrinsic death is a kapara, that, the fact that he died or she died, but the fact that we respond by saying, what a loss. What a person. What a way to live is an atonement for the way that we actually live, which might not measure up, but that we say, we want to measure up. Aspire. Correct. And we, only, we can do that whether we're actually inspired or just in showing the feeling of loss is a statement of the values that we have. And that's a kapara. That's an atonement for the lives we actually live over the fact that we tell them. I mean, okay, that's how, that's how they explain how this works. Says of Cook, let me... Okay, still have a little bit of time. So how, why the two, different, the two different teachings? We have this teaching in the death of Miriam next to the Paraduma and the teaching of Aharon, who's next to the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, and both times the sages say that the death of the righteous is a 
is a kapara. So Rav Kook develops the following thought. When we look at the righteous, the tzaddikim, the great Jews who have lived, there are two ways that we look at them and two traits that they have in, in, in broad strokes. One are things that when we read about, learn about, and hear about, can inspire us to do the same things. There are things that are within our ability to do. We just need the inspiration to do so. So we hear about the righteous who take davening seriously, who take chesed seriously, who keep lists of people to follow up with, and they go to great personal expense to visit someone. Things that we all can say to ourselves when you hear about that, you're like, I can do that. Maybe I can't do it to that extent, but... I can do that. And you hear about it, and it paves a path, so to speak, in which we just need the inspiration. There's certain things which, like, I didn't think of that. That's what makes the great people the great people, because they did think of things that I might not have. But now that I heard it, now that I saw it, I want to do that. That's a certain level of what we, what we take from the righteous. There are others, says Ruf Cook. That are beyond that. I, 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 can't, I can't do that. I don't, that's what, part of what makes them great is that they were bestowed with certain attributes and traits and strengths that the average person doesn't have. That's why they're extraordinary people, because they're extraordinary. They're not like, there's like people and then they're the greats. So there's certain things that we learn from the righteous or that we see or aspire like, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. It's just, I don't have that quality. I don't have the mind. It's not like, oh, I should have thought of that. I, I can't. That's not, you know, the great ones are great ones for that reason. So, of course, there are two types. There are the types of greatness that inspire, that are relevant to me, and then the greatness that's beyond. It's just, it's just they're unique in that sense. And those are these two different things. He says, of course, like this. The first drasha, which comes from Miriam, Miriam is next to the paraduma. When a person becomes tame, they go to a funeral, they're in the room with a, with a mace, they become tame. How do they become tahar again? You get sprinkled with a mace. Who needs to be sprinkled? The only men, women, kohanim, great people. Everybody's the same. I don't care who you are. A melech should be Israel. David a melech. If he became tame, how does he become tahar again? Same exact process that I'm going to go through standing next to him if we were at the same funeral. It goes across the board. It is accessible, available, and necessary for everyone. Who wears the clothing of the Kohen Gadol? Yes, that, that was a softball. Only the Kohen Gadol. <laughs> right? The clothing of the Kohen Gadol is only worn by the Kohen Gadol. Nobody else. Only he puts it on. Only he wearing his special big day kuna going to the Lefnaiv Lefnim into the Holy Volus on Yom Kippur. But even beyond that, all the other days of the year, the big day Kohen Gadol represent the clothing of the Kohen Gadol. So if Cook says these two things represent these two different aspects of, of the righteous. On the one end, you have the paraduma, which is across the board. Everybody, is, it's accessible to everybody and part of the, uh, the process for everybody. And that represents what we learn, the inspiration from the death of the righteous that's accessible to all of us. And that when we learn about or hear about when great people pass on and, and the stories are told... And they write the books, and they write the articles, and it's our job to stop and to read and to speak about it, to make a statement of, I value this. This is important. 
that somebody lives such a lifestyle matters to me. It's not like a cricket player. It matters to me. And you know what? I want to be more like that. And just like the Paraduma, there are aspects of that person's life that I want to take for myself. And I can. I can't be like that person. But there are things, there are aspects that I say I want. And then there is the Aharon together with the Big Day Kohen Gadol, in which you, you read, you learn about, and you're like, I don't, that's not relevant to me. But that also is machaper when we create the environment that allows for that greatness. When we value it. I want to take one, one last step, and with this we'll conclude. Rav, Rav, Rav Cook develops the following thought. Imagine, imagine if, uh, totally theoretical, if every parent would talk to their kids as if the only value that they would contribute to society is if they became a doctor or a lawyer. Imagine. I know it's not true. Just imagine. That's the only message that was ever conveyed to children is my only hope for you is to be a doctor or a lawyer. That's it. Now, if, if that were to be the case, if that were the environment, so two things on both sides of the equation would happen. What would be for children who had an artistic ability? Right, they're bad because we don't have, we don't have any value of that. What would be for a student who wants to become a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar? Would we have Rebbeim in the next generation? Would we have Rabbanim? Would we have great scholars pushing the limits of human understanding of Torah either? No, because all we said is, I want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. So on, on either side of that, whether or not you wanted to be an artist or you wanted to be a scholar, there's no chance for you. Because as a community, we conveyed that that's not important. So if Cook says, it's a beautiful idea. What allows the next generation to produce school teachers? And we have a crisis. And part of the crisis is because we're, we don't express the value of teachers of people learning, of teaching their learning to the next generation. But what allows there to be the next generation of Rabbanim, Talmidei Chachamim, Poskim, great Jews? What allows there to be the next generation of great Jews? A generation who values that and creates the environment and says, be it. It's an option. We want it. We care about it. We support the institutions that allow greatness to come out. When a great person dies, a tzaddik, and we look at him and say, like, I can't be that. But you know what? We look at it and we say, I want to support the community, the world, the environment that allows that. Because I value it. Is part. So of Cook says that's the kapara from that aspect of the Kohen Gadol that says, I'm not a Kohen. And even if I were a Kohen, I'm never going to be the Kohen Gadol. But I can create, I can be part of the world that sets up a system, that values it, that allows it to flourish, that allows someone else to be it. That much I can't be. I want to be like the Miriam and the Paraduma. There's things that are accessible from the greatness. I want that in my life. I don't know the Kohen Gadol, it's not but I'm going to be part of the society that values it, that makes it something worthwhile, that allows it to happen. So even though I can't, but it's going to be there because we as a community say it's important. If we would stop talking about 
having Talmidei Chachamim, we wouldn't talk to Bar Mitzvah boys about what they can become, then they won't become it. So we continue to support yeshivas and the kolos and the shuls and the schools that allow greatness to come from it. And that's part, that's our role. And that's the Aharon and the Kohen Gadol. It may, it's not me, but I want to be part of that to allow it to happen uh, for others. So that's how Rav Kook understood the two different statements of the sages, that the death of the righteous provides an atonement for those things that we can derive, and even though those that we can't, but we want to support its environment and uh, wishing everyone an awesome day and a great week.